welcome. I am your host, Nicole Nyberg. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner and also a proud preemie mama to my son, William, who just happens to be a former 23-weeker. So if you are a current or former NICU parent, you have come to the right place. I have been exactly where you are, and I know what you're going through. We will be discussing all things related to the neonatal intensive care unit for preterm and term infants, as well as some of the emotions and struggles parents endure along the way in the NICU and beyond. So tune in and get ready to become educated and empowered. This is the Empowering NICU Parents Podcast. While I make every effort to broadcast correct and up-to-date information, medicine is constantly evolving and advancing, and I continue to learn new things each day. Every NICU baby and their journey is different, and every institution varies in their practices as well. So please, always consult your obstetrician and your infant's physician for any medical issues or concerns. I am presenting from my personal experience and knowledge My opinions do not represent that of my employers. On our last podcast episode, I discussed human breast milk and reviewed all of its beneficial properties for all infants, but especially those born premature or critically ill. I briefly mentioned and described NEC, or necrotizing intercolitis, because human breast milk, especially maternal breast milk, has been shown repeatedly in research to reduce the incidence of NEC, which sometimes you'll also hear referred to as NEC. So today, we are going to dive a little deeper and review what exactly NEC is, what is thought to cause it, which infants are at an increased risk to develop NEC, what symptoms infants may present with, both the common and more subtle symptoms, the staging system used to define the severity of each case, what the management and treatment is, what are some of the preventative measures being used in NICUs, and then we'll close with prognosis for infants who have been diagnosed with NEC. The month of May is actually NEC Awareness Month. So what better time to learn more about necrotizing intercolitis than now? This episode will be beneficial for parents and NICU clinicians. So stay tuned and get ready to be empowered. You do not want to miss this episode. Have you been searching for the perfect NICU journal and you've been unable to find it? At Empowering NICU Parents, we have created a comprehensive NICU journal called Our NICU Roadmap. The journal is specific for NICU infants and includes everything you've been looking for plus more. We took all of your suggestions to heart and recently revised the journal based on your feedback as well. So it is smaller in size and will fit right into your bag, plus at a better price. The journal has everything I felt was pertinent, both as a neonatal nurse practitioner and a former NICU mother. Our NICU Roadmap provides a place for you to document all of your baby's progress while they're in the NICU. It will equip you with all of the necessary tools so you can confidently become an active member of your baby's care team. We have included educational resources to help you understand the NICU journey better, including, but not limited to, a detailed glossary that covers terms and abbreviations common to the NICU, and a NICU image to help you understand equipment commonly used in the NICU. Not sure what questions to even ask the NICU care team? We have you covered. 
The daily log guides you with questions to ask the care team, plus adequate space to document all of the pertinent updates for your baby each day. Next, we included specific areas to document all of the details on your amazing miracle, including birth stats, delivery details, weekly measurements, eye exam, and head ultrasound results. We also included a separate full journal section in the back to help you document and process all of your feelings and emotions throughout the journey. In our journal, you will find everything you need plus the finite details you have not even thought of yet. I promise you will look back on this and be amazed by your little one and all of their achievements, and it will be such a great keepsake. Go and grab your copy of our NICU Roadmap now on Amazon. Or if you are interested in buying in bulk at a discounted price for your hospital or organization, head to empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash NICU journal to contact us and see additional details and images of our journal or find the link in the show notes. I know there are a lot of tips I love to give new NICU parents, but one of my favorite bits of advice is to always celebrate every milestone your baby or babies achieve during their NICU journey. If you have not figured it out already, you will quickly learn that your NICU baby is incredibly strong and resilient. The milestones they conquer each and every day will absolutely amaze you. Do not miss out on celebrating and capturing one single milestone along your baby's journey with our NICU milestone cards. We have a collection of 26 milestone cards that are unique, colorful, and gender neutral to help you capture every one of your baby's milestones during their time in the NICU. Each card has a place for you to write the date your baby surpassed that particular milestone so you will never forget it. I so wish I had beautiful milestone cards to see each achievement my son William surpassed from opening his eyes to no longer being on phototherapy, being weaned off the ventilator, to taking his first bottle, and yes, eventually graduating from the NICU. Go and grab your baby set of downloadable milestone cards at Empowering. NICUparents.com forward slash NICU products or find the link in our show notes. Now back to the episode. So what is NEC? Necrotizing intercolitis is an ischemic and inflammatory condition of the bowel that affects infants with an occurrence rate of about one to three per 1,000 live births. It is more predominant in preterm infants and occurs in 5% of very low birth weight infants or those with a birth weight of less than 1,500 grams. Only about 10% of NEC cases occur in term infants, many of which have a pre-existing condition, which we will discuss in a little bit more detail later in the episode. Unfortunately, for infants that do develop NEC, it is a life-threatening condition with a mortality rate of 50%. The word necrotizing means the process of tissue death, and the word intercolitis means inflammation of the small intestine or colon. The pathophysiology, or the physiologic processes associated with NEC, include inflammation of the intestinal lining that leads to bacterial invasion and results in cellular damage and death to the intestinal wall, which causes necrosis of the colon and intestine. Unfortunately, as NEC progresses, 
it can lead to an intestinal perforation. Basically, it causes a hole to develop in the intestine that can result in spillage of the intestinal contents into the peritoneum and may result in peritonitis or inflammation of the abdomen, followed by sepsis and or death. Necrotizing intercolitis is a complex disease, and despite decades of research, it is still not well understood, mostly because there has not been one particular culprit identified that results in NEC. Some of the risk factors that have been identified are prematurity, low birth weight, formula feeding, ischemia, and altered intestinal microbiota. The disease is multifactorial in nature, meaning there are several factors that attribute to the pathogenesis of NEC. The majority of evidence continues to support the concurrent presence of several factors. Infants, especially those born prematurely, have an immature intestinal tract with an immature mucosal barrier that allows for increased permeability and bacterial penetration. Basically, the preterm infant's gut allows bacteria to more easily penetrate than that of a term infant. Additionally, a preterm infant's gut motility and function are also immature, which can result in delayed transit time or mobility of stool, allowing an increase in bacterial overgrowth in the intestine. Premature infants also have an immature immune system, which increases their susceptibility. All of these factors in combination with a trigger may lead to a disruption of the normal intestinal bacterial flora or microbiome. Some of the identified triggers include non-human milk feedings, circulatory instability, anemia or a deficiency in red blood cells, and medications like antibiotics that may cause intestinal mucosal injury or result in an enhanced microbial overgrowth. The combination of the infant's immature intestinal tract plus a trigger results in an increased growth of bacteria and eventually causes an exaggerated and altered inflammatory host response. Premature infants have immature local host defenses too and may have an imbalance between pro and anti-inflammatory factors, which results in a cascade of abnormal mediator responses. There is an inverse relationship between the risk of NEC and gestational age, meaning the younger the gestational age of the infant, the increased risk of developing NEC. More than 90% of NEC cases occur in very low birth weight infants. Luckily, according to Kim from UpToDate, the incidence of NEC does appear to be decreasing over the last 10 years in the United States. The decrease in cases is attributed to the quality improvement initiatives that have focused on reducing the risk of NEC. As I just stated, the majority of NEC cases occur in very low birth weight infants, but 10% of the NEC cases do occur in term infants. Term cases of NEC typically occur in infants who have received non-human milk feeding and they have a pre-existing illness. Infants with congenital heart disease, primary gastrointestinal disorders, sepsis, fetal growth restriction, and or perinatal hypoxia are at an increased risk. These conditions all affect the intestinal perfusion, 
which is what places these infants at risk for developing NEC. So for the clinical presentation, you might be wondering what symptoms do infants present with? NEC typically occurs in the second or third week of life or around a postmenstrual age of 30 to 32 weeks. Unfortunately, the majority of preterm infants who develop NEC are generally healthy, tolerating feedings and growing well prior to presenting with these symptoms. NEC is very rare in unfed infants. Additionally, the signs and symptoms are highly variable, nonspecific, and they may be very subtle. Parents often notice and report a decrease in their baby's activity with fatigue. The most frequent sign of NEC is a sudden change in feeding tolerance, which may present with abdominal distension, tenderness of the abdomen, vomiting, diarrhea, rectal bleeding or blood noted in the stool, or bilious drainage from the feeding tube. Although an increase in gastric residuals may be indicative of early NEC, there is not evidence to support the routine measurement of gastric residual volumes in asymptomatic infants anymore. This used to be a common practice in NICUs, but many NICUs today are no longer routinely checking for gastric residuals prior to feedings in well-appearing preterm infants. Some additional nonspecific findings may include apnea or pauses in breathing, respiratory failure, temperature instability, and lethargy or decreased responsiveness, as I mentioned before. Hypotension or low blood pressures may occur from septic shock in severe cases. On the physical exam, the infant's abdomen may appear distended, will be tender to palpation, and there may be visible loops of bowel, decreased bowel sounds, and or abdominal redness. Once findings suspicious for an NEC are observed, an abdominal x-ray will be ordered STAT. There will be a series of films done to include an anterior-posterior x-ray and left lateral decubitus. Generally, clinical diagnosis of NEC is based on the presence of common clinical features and the x-ray finding of intramural gas or small amounts of air noted within the wall of the bowel, otherwise known as pneumatosis intestinalis. There may also be an abnormal gas pattern with dilated loops of bowel consistent with an ileus. Sentinel loops, or a loop of bowel that remains in a fixed position, may also present which suggests necrotic bowel or possibly a perforation. The x-ray may also show portal venous gas, which is not universally present with NEC, but it is a transient sign of bacterial gas entering into the portal system. There may also be free air present in the abdomen when a perforation has occurred. Serial x-rays will be done frequently every 6 to 12 hours to monitor for free air in the abdomen or pneumoperitoneum because there is an increased risk for bowel perforation within 48 to 72 hours of disease onset. An absolute definitive diagnosis of NEC can only be made from either an intestinal surgery or post-mortem findings. The radiographic findings or x-rays need to be interpreted in the context of the patient's other clinical findings and the overall clinical picture. Laboratory findings will not make the diagnosis of NEC, 
but they may help support the suspected diagnosis and they will help to stage the severity of the disease. Typically, a CBC or complete blood count will be drawn with a differential to monitor for alterations in the WBC and the absolute neutrophil count or ANC. An ANC of less than 1,500 microliters is common in patients with NEC and indicative of a poor prognosis. The CBC may also show a low platelet count or thrombocytopenia, which is a frequent finding in patients affected by NEC. Trending the platelet count may also be helpful as a declining count early in the course of NEC correlates with necrotic bowel or worsening disease, whereas a rise in the platelet count may signal an improvement. A CRP or C-reactive protein may be done as well. If the value is elevated, it is indicative of inflammation. Although the initial number may not be incredibly helpful, CRP values are typically trended every 12 to 24 hours to monitor the progression. A chemistry panel will likely be done to monitor serum electrolytes, specifically monitoring for hyponatremia or low sodium levels. A blood culture will also be drawn because sepsis often accompanies NEC and will help guide antibiotic therapy if the culture does turn up positive. A blood gas will also likely be done as well to evaluate for metabolic acidosis and or any respiratory compromise. Coagulation studies may also be indicated, especially if there is thrombocytopenia present or low platelets, and to monitor for disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is DIC. DIC is a frequent finding in infants with severe NEC. It is a condition that causes abnormal clotting throughout the body. The staging system used for patients with NEC is called the Bell Staging Criteria. It helps to provide a uniform clinical definition of NEC based on the severity of systemic, intestinal, radiographic, and laboratory findings. There are three stages. Stage 1, or suspected NEC, is the stage that's characterized by nonspecific signs that may include temperature instability, apnea, and lethargy. On exam, the abdomen may be distended. There might be an increase in gastric residuals with some emesis and or blood in the stool. By x-ray, the images may be normal or show dilation of the bowel consistent with a mild ileus. Stage 2 is known as proven NEC, and it encompasses all of the signs of stage 1 plus absent bowel sounds, either with or without abdominal tenderness. Some infants have cellulitis of the abdominal wall or mass in the right lower quadrant. Additional findings may include metabolic acidosis and thrombocytopenia or a low platelet count. On x-ray, pneumatosis intestinalis is apparent, which is the defining feature of stage 2, and it may be with or without portal venous gas. The x-ray may also show intestinal dilation and ileus and or ascites. Stage 3 is advanced NEC. Infants with stage 3 NEC are critically ill. In stage 3A, the bowel is intact, whereas stage 3B is characterized by bowel perforation that is visualized on x-ray. The signs at this stage encompass the less severe stages we just spoke about, plus the infants may have severe respiratory and metabolic acidosis, 
respiratory failure, hypotension, oliguria, bradycardia, severe apnea, shock, neutropenia, and DIC. The abdomen is likely tense and discolored with spreading erythema or redness. In approximately one-third of the cases, NEC is suspected but not confirmed and the symptoms will gradually resolve. In 24 to 40% of the cases, the progression of NEC is fierce with signs of peritonitis and sepsis followed by the rapid development of DIC and shock. So you're likely wondering, how are these infants managed and treated? Well, early recognition and aggressive treatment have been shown to improve clinical outcomes. NEC does impact the long-term morbidity amongst its survivors. So the sooner we can catch it, the better. The main goal of treatment is to provide bowel rest and prevent progression of the disease to intestinal perforation and severe symptoms. As you may remember me stating earlier, that NEC is very rare in infants that have not been fed. So for medical management, one of the initial steps is to stop feedings and make the infant NPO. The GI rest is usually for 10 to 14 days. Infants with NEC have a loss of gut motility due to the inflammation in the bowel. So bowel rest with cessation of feedings lessens the stress on the gut. Next, gastric decompression is initiated. A large bore oral or nasogastric tube, often referred to as a repulgal, is placed to intermittent suction until the ileus is resolved and pneumatosis is no longer visualized on the x-ray. Infants will also need total parental nutrition that may be given through a peripheral IV, but more than likely will require a central line due to the need for prolonged IV nutrition, additional medications, and antibiotics. TPN helps to provide appropriate caloric intake until feedings are resumed. Assessment and management of the cardiovascular and respiratory systems is crucial. Infants with NEC may need fluid replacement, inotropic support to maintain a normal blood pressure, and respiratory support based on the infant's blood gas results, respiratory status, and clinical condition. Infants with suspected or confirmed NEC will be started on antibiotics. It is recommended to start with a broad-spectrum antibiotic that covers pathogens that cause late-onset sepsis in premature infants until the culture identifies a specific pathogen. Each institution may initiate different antibiotics, but in general, the suggested antibiotic regimen includes ampicillin, gentamicin, and either clindamycin or flagyl. Some institutions may utilize monotherapy with zosin or meropenem. Additionally, if the infant had a central line in place at the onset of the NEC diagnosis or in units where there is a high prevalence of MRSA, or ampicillin-resistant intracoccal infections, vancomycin should be used in place of ampicillin. The antibiotic regimen will be modified based on the results of the blood culture or any peritoneal fluid that was sent to pathology, as well as surgical specimens. For infants with Bell Stage 1, the NICU team, in collaboration with pediatric surgery, may decide to stop antibiotics a little early and resume feedings based on the clinical course but every unit may differ in their practice and every infant's clinical condition will also vary. 
As I stated previously, x-rays will be followed closely as well as labs and the infant's clinical exam to monitor the course for improvement or deterioration. If there is considerable progression of the disease with a lack of response to the medical management, surgical intervention may need to be considered. Typically, once NEC is suspected in an infant, a pediatric surgery consultation will be placed so the ped surgical team can closely follow the infant's condition. This is especially necessary for infants with stage 2 or 3 NEC. Or if the disease is rapidly progressing, or if there is evidence of an intestinal perforation. The decision for surgical intervention is made collaboratively by the neonatology team, the surgical team, with the inclusion of parents in all of the decision-making. A pneumoperitoneum is the only absolute indication for surgical intervention. The goals of surgical intervention are to remove unviable necrotic intestine and control enteric spillage while preserving as much of the viable intestine as possible. The surgical procedures for the treatment of NEC include exploratory laparotomy and primary peritoneal drain replacement. The choice of interventions varies among institutions and may vary based on the surgeon's preference, but also strongly considering the infant's clinical condition. The exploratory laparotomy involves the infant going to the operating room and being put under general anesthesia. The surgeon examines the bowel and resects the necrotic segments. A portion of the viable bowel is typically used for creation of a proximal enterostomy, usually an ileostomy, and also a distal mucous fistula. Most infants undergo reanastomosis or reconnection of the bowel anywhere between 4 to 12 weeks after the initial surgery, depending on the infant's clinical condition. Unfortunately, for some infants, once the bowel is visualized during the exploratory laparotomy, there may be diffuse ischemia, necrosis, and pneumatosis intestinalis that involves both the small and large intestine. This is called NEC totalis, which is severe and fatal. If this is found during the surgery, most infants are usually just given comfort care. The peritoneal drain placement is typically performed at the infant's bedside in the NICU. A Penrose drain is thread into the abdomen and secured. The primary purpose of the procedure is to relieve the pressure by evacuation of air and stool. The drain also provides additional time to allow some bowel to recover before resection of the non-viable bowel is performed. A peritoneal drain may also be placed for infants who are too critical or those who are too clinically unstable to be transported to the operating room. Postoperatively, these infants need supportive care with fluid replacement, TPN, antibiotics, and bowel rest for 10 to 14 days. Around two weeks post-op, if the infant is doing well clinically and intestinal motility has returned, small feedings of breast milk may be resumed very slowly. As I stated previously, due to quality improvement initiatives, a lot of focus has been on prevention of NEC in NICUs. Research has shown repeatedly that the use of human milk prevents NEC in premature and high-risk infants. We know that the use of maternal milk is always preferred. If you need a refresher on all of the amazing benefits of maternal milk, as well as how the composition of human milk varies when you compare term breast milk, 
preterm breast milk, and donor breast milk, go back and listen to episode 48 at empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash episode 48. And it will help you understand just how specific and wonderful maternal milk is for all infants, but especially preterm infants. But there are times when maternal milk is just not available. So rather than feed preterm infants formula, they are given donor human milk instead to reduce the risk of NEC. The use of standardized feeding regimens or protocols, starting with minimal enteral or trophic feedings, has also been shown to decrease the incidence of NEC. With these protocols in place, there is more consistency in how quickly feedings are advanced based on the different populations of preterm infants among all providers in the NICU. The use of probiotics may also be beneficial in preventing NEC. Probiotics promote colonization of the gut with beneficial organisms, preventing colonization by pathogens, and improving the maturity and function of the gut mucosal barrier. In 2022, Dickieson and Gonzalez Shalaby published a literature review and found that all of the reviews found statistically significant reductions in necrotizing intercolitis rates after supplementation with probiotics without any reports of adverse effects. Because probiotics are not considered a medication, though, they are not regulated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, so there are not any established regimens with the optimal strain and dosing. The use of probiotics in the NICU will be based on each unit's preference, and the parents will be involved in the discussion and ultimately the decision-making process. Prebiotics have also been proposed as a preventative strategy, but more research is needed. Additionally, the avoidance of prolonged antibiotic use is also recommended as we know that they alter the gut flora and ultimately promote the growth of pathogens. Despite preventive strategies and aggressive treatment, NEC accounts for approximately 10% of deaths of infants in the NICU. In a systematic review of literature, the overall mortality rate for infants with confirmed NEC, Bell stage 2 and 3, was 23.5%. The mortality rate increased for infants who underwent surgery to 40% and up to 51% in infants less than 28 weeks. Unfortunately, the mortality rate is highest for extremely premature infants who undergo surgical intervention. Infants that have undergone extensive resection of the bowel may develop short bowel syndrome, which requires specific treatment and management with some infants who ultimately require an intestinal transplant. Additionally, about half of the infants that survive NEC have long-term sequelae, including gastrointestinal complications, impaired growth, and impaired neurodevelopment. In systematic reviews, infants with NEC were twice as likely to be developmentally impaired when compared to age-matched children without NEC. Survivors of NEC are at an increased risk for cerebral palsy, cognitive, and visual impairments. The NEC Society is a charity organization led by families who have been personally affected by the disease. If you would like any additional information or would like to support their mission, which is to build a world without NEC by advancing research, education, and advocacy, head to NECsociety.org or find the link in our show notes.
I truly hope you have enjoyed this review of necrotizing intercolitis. As I stated previously, the research findings and preventative measures being utilized in the NICUs today have demonstrated an overall decrease in the number of NAC cases. I have seen a reduction myself during my professional career from when I started out as a NICU nurse 20 years ago. I actually cannot believe it's been that long. Sadly, we used to see many more cases of NAC. But today, with the use of human milk feedings and more regimented feeding protocols, although there are still cases, the incidence is less than before. But despite the reduction overall, NEC does still affect around 5% of the very low birth weight infants, and the mortality rate for those infants that have NEC remains 50%. So whether you are a NICU parent or clinician, I hope you learned something new, or perhaps it was all new information for you. For parents, if you ever notice that your infant in the NICU is acting lethargic and not as responsive, or if their abdomen appears more distended, point it out to your baby's nurse or provider. You know your baby the best and will likely pick up on the subtle cues more than anyone. For NICU nurses, if you notice any of the common symptoms or even if the baby you're caring for is having some temperature instability with an increase in apnea or bradycardia episodes or their abdomen appears distended with some erythema, please let the provider know. Always remember, the sooner the aggressive treatment begins, the better. For show notes, a list of references used and links mentioned in the episode, head to empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash episode 49. Please consider sharing this episode with anyone who will gain some value from it. I appreciate you listening. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to the Empowering NICU Parents podcast and have an amazing day. Remember, once empowered with knowledge, you have the ability to change the course. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Empowering NICU Parents podcast. For the show notes and any links mentioned in the episode, head to empoweringnicuparents.com. I would love to hear more from you on the topics you want to hear. So make sure you let me know in the comments section. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a rating. Five stars would be awesome so we can help other NICU families. Remember, if you have any questions or concerns with your NICU baby, please consult their medical care team. Until next time, friends. Bye.